Welcome to the Game and Gadget Podcast. James Woodcock from PixelRefresh.com and today I have with me three guests. One, of course, my co-host, my regular pundit, my friend extraordinaire, Tony Warriner, one of the founders of Revolution Software and always has a lot to say. Uh, we, we won't say grumblings, we'll say anecdotes of technology and his passions for such things. Welcome again, Tony. Hey. Hey. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I'm going to give you a short introduction next time. That's it. Right. Okay. That was, was wasted, on. wasn't it? That one. <laughs> <laughs> and also a repeat guest of the Game and Gadget podcast, Aaron Fothergill, a developer for many, many years, many stories, lots of informative conversations. Thank you again for joining the Zoom. Well, I'm sorry, following Tony, minimalist this week. No, it's absolutely fine. Absolutely, was James. What were you expecting? I I don't know. I don't know. If you're watching the video version, maybe they're expecting something energetic happening with arms and stuff. I don't know. But moving swiftly on, doesn't happen. Yeah, (laughs) Stu's looking very worried now. As the first time visitor the Game and Gadget podcast is when he always let himself in for (laughs) Stu Cambridge. Renowned for his artwork for games like Cannon Fodder, Sensible Soccer, and that was from his heritage at Sensible Software. Welcome to the Game and Gadget Podcast, Stu. Hello, thanks for having me on. It's, uh, it's my there pleasure. You go. That's a lengthy response. That's that's the way. <laughs> <laughs> Can I just correct you? I didn't. I didn't actually do the graphics for Sensi oh. Soccer. Just to, to okay, I'll, yes, I'll yes. rewind. Oh. Well, that's that. that John Hare did all that. John Hare did the graphics. Didn't, that, so didn't, so. didn't yeah. you, however, <laughs> didn't you, when we did that Oz Festival, didn't you, however, do the graphics for the official 10 liner sensible soccer that we, that we wrote at that, festi- that, that festival? Uh, do you know, I can't remember. It was you or Mike. Yeah, you were at it. I think we both might have done it together. But we'll get, we'll get back to that one. Maybe, that, was yeah. a, that was a whole yeah, thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. in a bizarre way, I may be kind <laughs> of technically correct. Only, only mm. incidentally. Only yeah. only just on the, yeah. the peripheral. Okay. <laughs> so, Stu, as you're new to the Game and Gadget podcast, I will start with you, if you don't mind. So, Cannon Fodder, I remember playing this years ago on my computer of choice at the time, the Acorn Archimedes 88010. And for anyone who played that game, there's probably a few things to remember it for. One is probably the music at the start. War has never been so much fun. And so on and so forth. And it was module style music, so there was actual voices in it, which was quite nice, which was quite novel at the time. And the Acorn, for those who don't know, was a 32-bit computer, which I adored, but for most people that would have got Amigas and Atari STs, not me. James got the Acorn Archimedes 83010. Well, that's another story, I digress. 
Then there's probably the whole concept of the poppies and your troops walking down the path. And then when you go through levels, if your troops died, they'd have little gravestones. It was all very sad. And then you, the, they'd all walk a few steps forward to replace them. So it's probably one of those few times, other than when you were playing a first-person shooter and it was a single person, you had a connection to each an individual troop of a whole waft of troops because they all had individual names as well. But third, and this is of course where Stu comes in, was the artwork. So in terms of artwork, Stu, for something like that, what would have been the original brief and how would you actually go about planning how it would actually then begin to look? Yeah, that's a very good question. I mean, the original brief was something like this. <laughs> Not a lot then. <laughs> Not a lot. Um, I, th actually, I, I actually tell a bit of a porky there. There was actually some text on a piece of paper that said, you know, uh, I, I can't remember what it said now. It was like... Um, soldiers war game strategy arcade uh lemmings with guns that kind of idea and that was pretty much it um so i i uh i didn't have a lot to go on and i have to say the initial graphics i did were pretty rubbish um they really i i, I mean i just started so for me I, I wanted to make a good impression and i had a bit of imposter syndrome going on at that time because i thought surely they've made a mistake <laughs> <laughs> why would they want me to do the graphics you know because these were like you know i mean sensible was like rock stars you know for me as a as a growing up because i played all the 64 games and all of a sudden i got a job with them um obviously you know they obviously liked my artwork but i i was quite nervous when i started so this this prospect to work on this this game this new amiga game was like right okay how am i going to do this um, the process involved was literally, we, we started with 32 by 32 tiles and it just didn't go anywhere. And I was talking to Jules and we said, well, we can go for 16 by 16s because they're a little bit, you know, it gives us a bit more freedom and flexibility. And that's how we ended up the tile set we ended up with. Um, and the jungle was the first set we did, you know, it's the first set I created. And there are some files which I've, which I've got on my archive, which, which look slightly different to the ones that were in the final release. And, um, but the great thing is we we just developed it and had a great lot a lot of fun doing it while we went along you know it was it was one of those projects where it was long hours you know as as tony and aaron would probably be able to appreciate that when you develop games you do actually spend quite a lot of time in front of the screen and um it's a relentless task but the rewards were really good. You know, it's, it, was, uh, it was a great, great project to start on. So how wildly different was that very first iteration then to what was actually finally published in the game? Well, the first set was, I had this idea of like Dartmoor um, and just like quite sparse sort of moorlands with like all the, you know, the heather and all that sort of stuff. So I did this 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 tile set, which was literally lots of undulating hills and and ditches, and but the colours just weren't right. And we got something in, and it just didn't work. You know, you put it on, it's just not right. It just doesn't look right. There's something not right about the whole the feeling of it. So I went away, and then we said we'll do sixteen by sixteen tiles. Um, 
and then I thought we'll have the jungle. We'll have some like palms, sort of pseudo palm trees. Get some like little little sort of lits of river, and and just just try and create something which is a little bit more identifiable as an area rather than just this big open expanse. Um, and in that respect, we can we can create little missions where you can go round and you can you know hide some baddies around there, and it kind of evolved. And um, so really, that was the real transition point from having like this really open layer of, of, of graphics with a few bushes in to this more sort of close-knit environment where you've got like you know you can work out routes and almost like a maze-like sort of thing and uh, that's that's pretty much where it went and from that point on the game kind of i'm not saying it developed itself but it led itself because the more we did it we thought, oh yeah we can do this we can do that and uh, and, and it, it kind of opened itself up for, for further design and expansion of that design which I don't think you can sit down and write on paper. It kind of evolves. And I think we were very lucky at that point to be able to do that because now it's it's not quite as easy, certainly in a commercial aspect, to have that amount of freedom. You know, and we did have an awful lot of freedom. <laughs> so no one said, yeah, do design me a jungle. It was literally, you had to think, what would be a suitable backdrop for this particular style of game? Yeah, yeah. I don't know whether I don't know whether it was films like Rambo or you know where you've got these jungle settings or or, or Predator or you know Commando, which are at the back of my brain at some conscious level, where the jungle came from. Um, maybe, but yeah, it literally was like, what what will look good? The only thing I kind of messed up on was. I, you only had 16 colours. So with the green background, I thought, hang on a minute, the sprites have got to be green as well. So, so, you know, so you see, like, and I've got enemy sprites to get in as well. Oh, they're going to be green as well. So there's an awful lot of green in the first level. But I think I think we kind of just about pulled it off. It's camouflage. It's camouflage. That, well, that's, that's the problem with doing <laughs> yeah. military games is, you know, the whole point of camouflage is you're not supposed to be seen, but that kind of makes it a problem for a game. <laughs> Yeah, totally, totally. So would you say, without blowing your own trumpet too much, I guess, that the graphics almost dictated how that initial game sort of evolved? As in, here's the graphics, and that kind of led to gameplay ideas of, okay, maybe this is going to trigger this, and there's a pit here, and so on and so forth. Um, I mean, from the off, we, you know, I mean, John and Chris had said we want this, we want it to be small sprites because they they just finished Megalomania, so that was like out the door. I I joined Sensible while Megalomania was being finished, so I got to see the final stages of development of that, and the the basis for the whole kind of you know this whole idea of having lots of little tiny sprites was so you can see more of the screen. Because you've only got a limited resolution, it's like 320 by 256 or 240. So the idea was to, to cram as much in as possible. And the only way you could do that is to have small sprites. And we just transferred that from Megalomania into the, the design of, of, of Cannon Fodder. So the design was always there to have small sprites. It's just how I interpreted them was, was my thing, you know, because I mean, John's art style and my art style are very different. So I've got a very sort of. I suppose arcade style to my artwork because I was I brought up on the arcades. I used to spend a lot of time in the arcades growing up, so I was really heavily influenced by those those early arcade games. So I wanted to make sure the graphics were very representative of what I would see in an arcade. If I could do that on Amiga, then that's what I tried to do. Um, but yeah, I mean, it was it was very much, you know, we had to get lots of little sprites in there, and I kind of adapted the art to kind of 
present that in the way that I could. And I was new and fresh, so I was I was really um, I, I I I did at the time initially. I thought I hope they like what I do <laughs> because it's like I was a new boy. So yeah, but it worked out. It worked out right. So were there any challenges? Obviously, Cannon Fodder went from the Amiga to many other platforms. Did the artwork ever change as a result of that? Were there any new dynamics, or was it literally the same pixel set that came from the Amiga? Um, I did see the PC version, and obviously I'm a little bit, I get a little bit sort of um, precious about my art because I don't have a problem when people take it and convert it and put it straight onto another machine. But when I start fiddling around with it, and it's still got my name on it, it's like, mm. and I noticed on some of the versions, people start messing around, like they change the color palettes or they they blur a, th- a few things out. And I saw one where the poppy had been blurred because obviously the original was like 16 colors. So to get more shades, they just obviously applied a blur brush to it in D paint or whatever. And I, th- I think that was the piece, um, the Super Nintendo or the PC version. One of those had this horrible menu on it. And I thought, why? Why would you <laughs> do that? The only thing I wish I'd have been able to do a lot of the conversions myself, because then I would have made sure that I'd have enhanced the graphics for those particular machines. Uh, most of the time, the graphics went across pretty much unhindered but there were a few horrors where i thought oh, no, they've ruined the look i mean i think the snes version the colors were a lot brighter and they they i wasn't quite happy with that um but the the majority of the conversions were pretty pretty good i think i think the archimedes version was top i thought that was a fantastic version like with the sensi soccer the sensi soccer version of archimedes was really good as well yeah so um but yeah i think the, 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 the there's a quite there's quite a few which i'm not very happy about <laughs> I'm just wondering with the SNES version, I vaguely, vaguely remember something about NTSC TVs not having the colour range. Mm. So it might have been they deliberately brightened it to make it look okay on NTSC mm. TVs. But of course, on the PAL telly, it will look terrible. Possibly. <laughs> yeah. yeah, possibly, because I think the SNES had a, was it a 32,000 colour palette, mm. I think, this SNES. I think, and, and, but I think it had some str- strange screen modes. Um, I know the Mega Drive version was was very limited in terms of what it what it because it only had five hundred twelve colours, um, but it had obviously four palettes of sixteen, so you you had a bit more freedom, but you was restricted in number of the colour depth. But um, the the I mean I actually like the Mega Drive version. I thought the Mega Drive version was pretty good. I thought it was a really good version, despite the graphics not being quite up to the Amigas. Um, but I am really fussy. I'm I'm so I'm so fussy when it comes to my graphics. I, I I'm I'm probably like an old bore when I'm in the pub talking about it. It's like, shut up, Stu, you're going on about it again. <laughs> well, I had so much admiration for your artwork. And of course, playing Canon Fan of oh, Fodder back in the day, I enjoyed it as a game. And I don't think I was old enough to really appreciate that all the elements that actually go into building a game. I just know, oh, that music's catchy. This is really good gameplay. It just feels right. But when you get older, you realize, wow, the graphics, it's tying into the gameplay. It's adding, you know, would be it atmosphere or the style or, you know, you were saying that the particularly back in the day, the difficulties with limited color range, that would have never triggered to me as a youngster. I just know here's a game that was the best that was available. And I guess when you're playing years before that playing the atari 2600 you just looked at hey this is a good gameplay experience and then when you get older you start to probably analyze or maybe as you get older and geeker you start to analyze it more i don't know but the point is it always resonated with me as a game and i'm actually finding it quite shocking that with all the remakes 
that's been done over the years. Cannon fodder. I've not seen anything cannon fodder reappear as a name. There was cannon fodder too, but there's never been a cannon fodder. You know, I don't, I don't want to. I'm almost hesitant to say remaster because I there's a big fan base for pixel art as it would be called now, and I'm I'm the same. <laughs> But Cannon Fodder hasn't had that same treatment. I mean, well, how do you no. feel about that, Stu? I mean, there must be a, a part of you that's thinking, yes, I'd love to see this, respectful to the original, and book, bring something for more modern. But I think on an Android phone, for goodness sake, even if it was exactly original assets. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I was. it's funny. I was talking to uh, Rob, who did, read the, um, he did Open Fodder. I was talking to him earlier on Twitter. And he was, we was talking about, a, like, a enhancing Cannon Fodder. And I said, I've always wanted to do an AGA version of Cannon Fodder because I'd love to have expanded on the graphics, add some proper, you know, different uniforms and, and change the vehicles and all sorts of things. But you're right. I mean, it seems really bizarre that, that, that Codemasters bought Sensible, Lock, Stock and Barrel, and then just sat on it. Mm. And I think they did, they, they kind of put, and they slapped the, the name Cannon Fodder 3 on a title that must have been already been development, which I've heard has been pretty, pretty rubbish. But they've done nothing with it. And you think, it's crying out. It's literally crying out mm. for, like, a, another version. But for me, it would have to be true to the original, where it'd have pixel art, using modern tech. You know, I mean, you think what you could do now, you could have, like, the, the backgrounds exploding. You have all sorts of things you can do now, but within the pixel art mm. sort of style. It seems crazy that, 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 that it's not been done. I would love to do, I would really love to do another version. I've always wanted to do another version of Cannon Fodder. Um, see, I didn't work on the second one. They used a lot of my graphics, but I, I wasn't the main artist on that. John Lilly took over for that one because I was already committed to another project. And so for me, I'd love to have been able to work on the second one. Um, but it does, it just defies belief that you would, you know, you'd buy something which is such a, a strong Amiga game. I say Amiga game, it obviously was multi-format and do nothing with it. You know, when it's got such a strong following and it's got such a strong design. I mean, one, one of the... Um... The odd things with it is because it was so iconic on the Amiga and it was so iconic beyond the Amiga, it actually has the sort of knock-on effect that if you do anything that's even vaguely looks like cannon fodder, everyone assumes it's cannon fodder. And I think that might have had an, an impact on why there's not been another cannon fodder. We did a game on, on the iPhone uh, about 2009 called Warpack Grunts, which wasn't supposed to be cannon fodder. And it, it's supposed to be... It went back to the same thing, small small 3D models rather than sprites, because uh, the whole thing was 3D, but plan view, might cannon fodder. But the idea was it was a, a fixed squad of four guys that you were doing. And there was, a, there was a sort of basically a storyline thing. And the primary reason for going small was because, again, tiny screen, and you needed to have your finger on the screen to control where they're going without blocking the view of everything. So same design problems. And basically, everyone just assumed it was going to be cannon fodder as soon as they saw it, because it was there was four four guys running around a jungle shooting things in in sort of two D looking, you know, in terms of plan view. So of course we 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 never got away from it being um, cannon fodder. So of course everyone's like, oh, it doesn't doesn't control right, but it's not it's not cannon. And I think that's one of the things with any future cannon fodder it is. You, you've got everything is now compared to it. It's, it's just like, you know, just so iconic it, um, that, that um, I think you'd, you'd have to seriously go some to, to do anything different. 
Yeah, I mean, I've I've often I've often been asked, you know, oh, you know, you you maybe should do a Kickstarter and 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 fund a you know a, a spiritual successor, yeah. <laughs> um, and that does really appeal. I mean, that really does appeal to me. But developing games, as you know, is 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 it's not an easy task. No. And as you're getting older, I mean, certainly as I'm getting older, I can't do the long hours like I used to, and and the commitment would be there, but the hours wouldn't. Mm. <laughs> so you'd have to kind of say, right, okay. But having said that. You know, I, there were so many things that I would like to have put into the to the game if I'd have worked on a sequel. There's quite a quite a large sort of design list of things that I would have put in if if I was involved in one. So um, hmm. who knows? I mean, who knows what's around the corner? You know, yeah. we don't. We, you know, I think I think one of the other so, challenges as well is um, get war games. Um, they're, they're not going to have favour because basically first person shooters are obviously you know, blow everything up, kill everybody kind of thing. But games about actual war seems to be kind of out of favour because basically people have, I don't know, people have grown up a bit socially or whatever and um, it, it's a case of where you don't really want to be killing lots of people nowadays, do you? Actually, it's fun. You know, we we, we always, we're, I mean, we're, we're all kids who grew up playing war um, and it's that's mm. kind of different now. So maybe, maybe I don't know. Maybe the, the culture's changed. That um... yeah, I think I think the other thing. I mean, when, I mean, certainly when we was developing Cannon Fodder, the the um, something really bizarre happened when we associated names with the sprites. Now, up until that point, when I was over the moon to see my little men running around the screen, I mean, I was because when Jules put the control system in, and you know, you could click and you could put a path out, and they would follow it. I was like, wow, because it was great for me because I, you know, seeing the animations moving on the actual landscape and and because other than that, you'd, you'd use D paint and move the brush around and it was like, yeah, it was all right. But once we put the names in, it's almost like the whole game just changed that instant where you could identify with these these little characters, even though they all look the same. Hmm. You know, it, 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 it was really weird because you're on a personal level, you're associating a human being because there's a name associated with that little sprite. And once he starts working his way up, up the ranks and you get become like a captain or a general or whatever, you think, I want to, I want to keep him because his firepower's better. He can throw his grenades further. He can do all sorts of extra things that the, you know, the early conscripts can't do. So you want to protect him. And when he goes, you think, Oh no. And that was it. It was literally a double blow because they did increase rank yeah. as you use them more and more yeah. for each the level. And it's not like you could pick the troop that would be in that level. Like, I want to protect this guy because I know this level may be a guy. No, he was going straight on the front line. If he was in the order that he was given, if you had jewels from the very start and he still survived, you'd watch his rank increase and that name would follow him everywhere. And it was like, and then, oh. <laughs> cannon fodder then, once you lost troops and you completed the level, you get like this credit almost sequence down of your troops who died in the yeah. rank they weren't. It's like, oh. <laughs> I mean, when I play Call of Duty or something along those lines, it doesn't give you that emotional deepness with that character. It's, it's just a, an anonymous guy that is you just and you you spawn within five seconds of your dying. But cannon fodder, you had a connection to those oh. little pixels on the screen. Yeah, I think I think the main the main. I mean, I've looked I've, at the time. I didn't didn't really look at it in that way, um, but in reflection, I think today the graphics are so good on modern systems that your imagination almost goes 
to the back of the queue. You're sitting there, and you, you know, your imagination's sitting there with its feet up. Whereas back then, because the graphics were naff compared to what we've got today, your imagination took over, and you did start to create even at a subconscious level, scenarios for these, these things and, and images. Like when you read a book, you know, you read a book, it's all in here. There's no pictures. It's all in here. So your brain creates that environment, that whole world. And I think that's the difference between the gaming back then and gaming now is it's all done for you. And that also means your, your, your attachment to characters is also a lot deeper when you're creating them yourself than when it's handed to you on a plate. The right, I think that was yeah. part of the, the thing that happened with cannon fodder. No, that's true. I mean, there, there might be a way to actually recreate that in modern gaming. Um, I think I might mentioned it before about that. that there was that Met game that had the, the giant twin joystick specific controller and so on, where if you got damaged and your Met was about to explode and you didn't hit, you know, didn't, didn't flip the thing up and hit the eject button, it deleted your save game. Um, and I'm thinking, you know, if you're playing like PUBG or Call of Duty or whatever, and you get killed, and especially if you're a high level character who's bought lots of in app purchases to, to bling up your character and everything, what should happen is if you get killed in that game, all the stuff you've earned is deleted. <laughs> so all the stuff you bought, all the stuff you've earned, you know, all your, all your flashy gold gun with the sparkles on or whatever. God, you know, wow. so suddenly all these yeah. like level 500 players in PUBG are, are like, mm, do I want to risk playing today? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, companies that love microtransactions yeah. will love that idea. <laughs> Yes, <laughs> but you, you can imagine it. You know, you're sort of going, rocking in up as a level 500 player. You you spent five years getting all this stuff, and you you spent a load of money on it, and you you accidentally get headshotted by some level, you know, first level noob, and it's all gone. <laughs> still battalion, was yeah, it? That's brutal. Yeah, still battalion. That was the one I think. Yeah, yeah it was, wasn't it? Still battalion. Yeah. That rings a bell. Yeah, that was that was the ultimate mental in terms of three uh, third party well, <laughs> first party add-ons and also breaking the rules for the playstation as well because the whole deleting your save game without telling you was a bit of a no-no on on the playstation uh but they managed to get it through sony probably because i think it was either first or second party development no it's not supposed to the only other one i've ever heard of them doing that is uh i think might have been um, one of the um, Solid Snake games um, where it reads your mind at one point. The boss, the boss reads your mind by reading your your save game um, to see what you've done. <laughs> there was some <laughs> trick or something that they did did with it. That's but... a bit cheeky. Yeah, I know. It's like <laughs> <laughs> must be some GDPR thing there. <laughs> yeah, nowadays that would be a definite issue. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So, Stu's described something there, like, I don't want to say the wild, wild west, but the freedom, particularly, you know, a couple of decades ago with creating games, that there wasn't that much of a brief. You were given quite a lot of freedom to move forward and discover new gameplay types and new graphic styles, because the chances are it probably wouldn't have been done before at that point. It was very much that a new game would come out and often it would bring something completely new to the table. Something I think 
lacking quite a lot today just because of the number of games and so on and so forth. But I don't know. I mean, let's start with Tony. Do you feel that that sensibility of being able to just try things, see if they work, and have the budget and time to do that without saying, we're going to create this game, this is how it's going to work, this is how it's going to look. Do you think that could even be a thing now? Well, I mean, this is this is where where a lot of great games came from. You know, it's just you, you get the right people, a very a very small number of people. You know, you'd have a great artist, you'd have a, you'd have a programmer, and, and often that was all there was. And you put those people down, and, and you know, they might have a vague idea of what what they're aiming at. You know, um, I'm, I'm sure there was a, a a pretty good germ of an idea for cannon fodder, but. Um, and uh, you know, you know, everyone starts, and and then you sort of jam the thing out, and and you, you know, it's it's not too expensive to to experiment and backtrack and and edit and iterate and all these things, you know, with those kind of materials, uh, as in pixels and a, a bit of code, you know, and that's that. I mean, a lot of great games came from that from that way of working. I mean, it, it, it's it's what I like to do myself, and. Um, you know, it's what I what I want to do in the future. So I mean, I think pixels is the way to go. You know, I mean, obviously, you know, they can't do AAA like that because it's because it's a million spreadsheets and five hundred people in a a tax exempt office in Canada. You know, you, you can't mess about jamming for six months with five hundred people, but you can if there's two or three or four. You know, so um, you know, why not? Why not? Why not work that way again if if you can? You know, I mean, it'd be lovely to see a, a cannon fodder sequel i mean the trick would be mm. to to restrict the the graphic resolution probably you know um so 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 no one's going off doing crazy crazy art that can't be thrown away you know if, if it's if it's done like it was before but with more cpu more ram but the same graphics you could you could probably do the the dream version you know be interesting to know what mm. oh, i agree with what you. it would cost to extract the ip mm. from Codemasters, wouldn't it? <laughs> that's the problem. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Cannon is yeah. a really yeah, great I think name. that's the hurdle. I mean, what a great we, name! We'd have, yeah, we'd have to have a, great. A, a not quite Cannon Fodder name. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I assume they wouldn't. They're like the more interested you look, the more the price will go up. But I mean, if if you had the right yeah. people, then you can easily say this is a, this is this is a spiritual follow up and, and come, come up with a clever name and oh. who's to stop you? You know, I think it would do very well. Mm. I look at. I think so. I mean, I mean, look at I mean, look what John's John's done with with Sociable Soccer. Mm. You know, I mean, John John Hare's done it with Sociable Soccer, which is you know, it's a great game, and it is literally the spiritual successor to Sensible Soccer. Yeah, yeah. So it can be done, yeah. um, but it's it's you know, it's just I suppose it's looking at the bigger picture and saying well, how you know how do you proceed and, and do it. But uh, yeah, right. I look right at games people. like Sonic Mania, where. It's doing far beyond whatever the Sega Mega Drive could ever have accomplished, but it doesn't feel out of place as a me- like a Mega Drive follow-up. It just feels like that world. Nothing's changed too much. It's still very much connected to Sonic One, Two, Three, Knuckles, etc. It just feels like a proper follow-up, following those same rules. But you can tell it's got more hardware clout now, so it's able to do more fantastic things in the background. The animations are more detailed. There's more frames there, and so on and so forth. So if they've certainly achieved it, and I'm sure it wasn't easy. <laughs> but, you know, there is a possibility. And I think also, 
even more key, the commercial interest is there, i.e. Sonic Mania was very successful. There's been many pixel art style games now that have been successful. So this is when we need the next canon fodder, gents. Maybe I'm preaching to the converted here, but for anyone else who's listening, I, I, I think one of the, one of the things we're doing, and um, you know, the next cannon fodder, whatever it ends up being called, due to various copyright reasons, naming reasons, or whatever, trademarks rather, um, is um, is not so much doing it to, to cash in and make loads of money. It's more of doing it because you want it to do the new cannon, the next cannon fodder game, and and as long as it doesn't bankrupt you then it's cool. I mean, this is kind of where the Kickstarter thing, Kickstarters are a bit variable, but the thing is, at least in a Kickstarter is you, you get, you at least know you're not going to go bankrupt doing it. You can see, as long as you're reasonably, you know, clued up on, on how, you, how to write a game. I mean, a, a, a lot of, a lot of the Kickstarters I've seen, most of the ones that have gone bad are people who think they know how to write a game, but haven't. And I've got all these great ideas and, just just need the money, you know. Yeah. <laughs> and it's like, nah, it doesn't work that way. <laughs> where whereas, you know, you take mm. you take some of the ones where someone's come along with an old with a, a classic title and the history of writing them and just said, Right, look, we want to write the next version of Cannon Fodder. It's gonna cost us this much. These people are on board, you know, funders, and you'll get funded and then you can just do it as what you want to do rather than it being commercially driven. Um, as long as and, it plays that, well, that I think it, is in, if it plays yeah. well, it'll do well, and it will make the money back. At, yeah, you know, it, it yeah. doesn't need to be triple A. People want gameplay, I and mean, it's all about gameplay, really, isn't it? Hmm. Hmm. Totally. I'm going to go back to what you said a little while ago, Tony. Was that the um, about the resolution? And that's the point that I, I agree with you because I think key would be to retain that look, yeah, yeah. but lock it to the resolution. Yeah, yeah. Because there's one thing I find really really bizarre when you get a game which is like i don't know it's at say 320 200 or 256 and it's on a hd screen and they have all the sprites moving like at 60 frames a second sub pixel level and you think the illusion's been blown now for me Mm. because it's no longer moving a pixel at a time it's like really smooth no 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 you've got to lock it you've got to lock it to the pixels that it it, it's supposed to be representing Yeah, yeah. yeah and that for me was would be the way I would, if I was going to do any any retro style game, I'd have to lock it to that resolution. Yeah. From everything. Yeah. You yeah. know, absolutely everything. So you do get that feel. Yeah. 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 But with modern tech, with all yeah. the bells and whistles, which is you know, which you can do loads with. Yeah, it's just yeah, similar to the the classic problem of um, of retro graphics that are super super crisp color pixels, which you never ever saw if you're playing on a telly. You know, everything was just a subtly blurred because you designed the pixels knowing that it would be on a TV which wouldn't give you the super crisp pixels you know and then unless you were one of these very few people that sat at home with a, a, a you know a reference monitor or something to, to play your games on <laughs> Indeed. I I mean, how many people actually owned an MT32 the Roland module not sorry not module the, oh, the, wow. the MIDI player so I have one point, well, well I knew you'd have one I'm, I'm talking about yeah, well, I, I, Joe I, era I, <laughs> I, 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 it was a record. That's because we were writing music with with them, you know. But um, in fact, my first business before I set up Shadow Software was writing editors for them. Before before I pivoted to games, uh, I actually wrote editors for for synths. Um, you see, most of us. I mean, f- thank goodness for 
platforms like the Amiga, you had module music. So it almost it sounded mm. like real instruments because were very very short sample snippets that would then be played, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. So it's like a mini synth in its own right. But then the MT32 came along. I had no idea of its existence when I was playing point and click adventure games. It was just I had my Sound Blaster 16 when I had a PC, which was ad lib FM music, which was okay. But I went from the Acorn Archimedes Sam and Sorcerer with the module music. Then went to the Sound Blaster 16 on the PC so I could get the talky version because it wasn't apparently reviewed very well, the talky version of Sound Source. So it was apparently a bit, the audio was a bit crushed and, uh, I don't know, buggy or whatever. So I got the PC version. I got a PC, ver- I got the PC just to play Sound Source with talky version, but that's another story. <laughs> but the point is, I went from module to FM, which was based off MIDI. And it was like, oh my word, it doesn't sound as good as the Acorn. I wasn't expecting this. And then later I found out about devices like the MT32, but it was well out of my price range. There's no way in hell, as a youngster, I could have afforded such luxuries. So now it's the weird, nice to go weird back thing is, way. from the studio budget point of view, the MT32 was ridiculously cheap. Oh, yeah. Because this is the thing is, it was, it was a device that came in. Um, it was actually designed for, for lounge lizards because it was a device that came in to be sat on top of a p- an electric piano and you'd be sort of you know playing at the, the Moonlight Sonata Bar or whatever and you'd suddenly have all these extra sounds that you could you could add on to your, your piano. And at the time, a, an instrument that could play, I think it could actually play 16 instruments at once, which for synthesizers at the time was like, wow, you know, that, 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 a whole instrument per MIDI channel and enough notes to play it was was remarkable. Polyphony. With a ridiculously low price. And the, the problem was the ridiculously low price was because they didn't have any backed up, battery backup memory on it, which for a synth at the time was weird because there was no editing. You had, it was all preset, but it was editable, which is where I came in doing MIDI editors on, on the ST for it. And um, then, then, you know, but you couldn't save them. So you had to save them to your computer. But also at the same time, there were obviously pitching it for, for you know lounge lizards on their pcs on their on their their, their uh, pianos and then it shifted to the game side especially in japan where they started doing cheaper pc card mt32 modules uh yeah the, the, to, to do to do the sound and uh, and making it a, a midi midi sound standard as well which was, was quite interesting and that's what made it even more curious about the immigrant um acorn version was to recreate the music on those computers, that module music, they basically recorded the instruments off the MT32 in a much lower resolution, etc. To recreate yeah, it. Yeah, exactly. But then I would, on the PC, have to buy the actual MT32 module, which would have sounded superior, obviously, to that original Acorn version. But still, it was a bit much bigger investment than, a, you know, just, yeah. <laughs> just using the computer I already had, like the Acorn. Yeah, yeah. The oddities, eh? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 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 I'll tell you one thing I always thought was a bit strange, and, and this is my quirkiness coming through here. I never understood why they never, with Commodore, never sort of kept the SID chip range going because you had this fantastic synthesizer chip. You think, why not bring that, you know, carry on with that? Say, I mean, maybe introduce it into an Amiga or, or an updated version to an Amiga, and then you've got all the sampling, four channels of sampling plus the SID chip. You know, 
Uh, I never, I never understood that. And I know that obviously the history of the Amiga was that it was, it was basically developed outside by Lorraine, and they brought it in and did all that sort of stuff. But you think, oh God, you know, the SID chip just stopped, and that was it. Yeah. Once the sixty-four and the one to eight went, that was it. That was the end of the SID chip. Yeah, Commodore a bit it's funny. Crazy. Where where money was concerned, yeah. development. Um, yeah. I mean, you know, when the the dying days of the Amiga were were hilarious in terms of where the money all kind of went and disappeared. But um, they wasted a lot of it, though, didn't they? In the in the late years, oh, I mean, they were bringing yeah. doing all sorts of bizarre things, and you think, why, why do that? Uh, uh, still, a lot of companies like they they just didn't know what they were doing. They, they mm-hmm. I think, with the Amiga, mm-hmm. they had a success without realizing it. They didn't know that, why they got got popular. But hey, suddenly we're making we're selling a lot of these things to gamers. Why, you know? And they they got a bit lost. <laughs> Yeah, uh, yeah, totally. It was the Wild West, though, wasn't it? That, that whole, that whole yeah. era. I mean, everyone was a cowboy. <laughs> I mean, to mm. to, to generalise, <laughs> the, the, simple, the simple way to describe the whole industry, you know, games and the hardware, it was it was all yeah, was all a bit well, it's all a bit under. Yeah, how much the, is the that? The last of days just, of Commodore, I think. Yeah, I mean, how much of that though is really hindsight? That it's easier to look back now and think, oh, why did you do that? But mate, surely at the time these business guys thought this is definitely the right way to go this is definitely where the money in this is how we show the performance level of the machine is you can't you can't tell me they were thinking at the time i want to kill amiga let's do this a a lot of the (laughs) machines were were a case of like some enthusiasts made a great machine and then then very middle ranking business people took over and 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 then you know made a lot of money from the from the greatness of the original designs and then they mm. blew it all spectacularly you know because they couldn't move i on. mean yeah the a600 is a case in point it's basically how can we make an a500 with a bit more ram cheaper uh rather than actually making it the next gen machine a600 was pretty awful basically you know it was technically better than an a yeah, A five hundred, but not a lot. Wasn't it like an A five hundred plus? Sort of without yeah. the key, without the keypad, the numpad. That was it. Yeah, it basically yeah. shrunk the box, and because they shrunk yeah. the box, they couldn't actually expand anything really. They technically made it so you could put a hard drive in it, but that was impossible to get the right type because, again, the the, the cheapest hard drive in, uh, connectors and everything they had meant they couldn't do it right. They they skipped on a lot of things. They they made it somewhat problematic. I think they expanded the the um, the footprint of the ROM into the RAM. So so even though you know so basically end up with less RAM. <laughs> I mean there was that was something that translated mm-hmm. across to the CD32. We had first bit of code you do on the CD32 is to delete the CD32 intro 3D spinner because that burns half your RAM. Um, and if you don't actively delete it it sits there in memory and there's half your ram gone <laughs> so basically yeah. amiga had the I remember all sorts of things like that so basically the sorry go on so, <laughs> so, <laughs> so basically the amiga had the a500 and then built the a600 which was basically a smaller version just maybe a slightly bit faster and then they shrunk it again and made it the cd32 they didn't shrink it for the cd32 cd32 was massive compared um, to an a600 yeah, I've got one floating around somewhere, but basically it's a bloody great big square box <laughs> with the CD on it. Uh, and it was, technically the CD32 was an A1200, 
where they slapped a CD on. I mean, we've, we've gone about before about how they didn't even connect the CD up properly. It just literally, you can play a CD on it and get the data off it and it'll play music, but you don't access the music in any way. You just play it and that's it. Uh, it was so cheap. 1K of, of non-volatile save memory for every game. So if you've got 1K built in, any save games you're doing for any of your games that you put in a, on a you know 700K CD, uh, 700 megabyte CD, you, you basically, um, you've got 1K to save your data across those games, which you can split across three games. <laughs> So well, they also did something really bizarre, didn't they? Like they put this because on the twelve hundred, I really liked the twelve hundred. I mean, I used it in the sort of later days of Amiga development. But I remember reading that when they bought the CD thirty two out, they they put the chunky to planar chip in the CD thirty two, so you could basically do displays like you did on a PC, which was your you know your your dooms and all that sort of stuff. And you think, well, that that's just bonkers because. It's not on any other uh, later Amigas. Yeah, so and they, it was you know even next... if they brought it out on the twelve hundred afterwards and said we'll put that in there and then if, if you've got if you're enhanced you know it's an enhanced twelve hundred game but it just it just seems crazy. Well, yeah, crazy. Said, because the rest of the architecture wasn't set up for it, it didn't actually well it worked, but you couldn't use it. It just wasn't practical yeah. in any way apart from maybe a yeah. Doom style demo, you know. So, uh, and, and, like a bodge, really, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, like, I, 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 I probably mentioned it on here before, but the dying days of the... Com- we were doing CD32 games in the dying days of Commodore. And we had someone from Commodore's press department contacted us and said, we're doing, um, we're doing a big promo of all the CD32 games. Send us all your press copies of, of your CD32 games and we'll get them out and, and just a big, big, we're doing this big, big promo. So we sent them all our CD32, you know, all, all, all the spare press copies we had of our CD32 games, as did a lot of other developers, and nothing. And then Commodore went bust. And then we started seeing these adverts in, in the games press, little tiny little, uh, you know, sort of adverts. Someone selling CD32 games cheap. And it was actually someone from Commodore who basically they got, all, got us to send them these games so they could flog them off to pay as much of the wages as they could as they were going bust. Sounds about right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Crazy. Which is, that's why we didn't end up with, um, we, we never actually got a, a, our own copy of the CD32 version of Base Jumpers because of that. Um, because our press copy had been sent off to Commodore. <laughs> I don't have a, a CD32 copy of Steel Sky either. Uh, I, I don't even, I, we never had a machine. Either. I don't know how we did it. I mean, I mean, I know we did, I know we did do it, but. I don't remember anything about it or, or ever seeing a machine. Well, the dev- or, it's a yeah. strange thing. The dev kit I mean, was was a board. Was it? It was, it was basically a hard. It was a hard drive adapter you plugged onto a normal CD32 that let you plug in separate joysticks and so on, but let you plug in a hard drive and a floppy drive. We didn't actually have a hard drive we could use for it. So the basic development plan for a CD32 game was: you write the game on flop onto a floppy disk on your Amiga boot from the floppy. Um, if you've got a gold disk by that point, you use that for data. You could read from the gold disk for data. But essentially, the first version of the game was wrote, running off floppies and literally changing floppies as you play. You then send off a big stack of floppy disks to Commodore who will burn that to a gold disk. And in the case of Jetstrike, we're sending it off with a DAC tape for the music as well. 
to be burnt to be converted and burnt off onto a gold disc. We get the first gold disc back a week later. You put that in as your current data. New floppy with the updated version of the game reading the current data off the CD and the music playing off the CD. Update this, send off another stack of floppies. Wait a week, <laughs> and that, that's how we did the whole development. It was it was nightmarish. <laughs> yeah. I mean, Does this sound familiar, that, Tony? Is this what you did? Well, <laughs> I, I, we must have done, but I can't remember anything about it. I mean, I mean, I know we did it because there's there's a copy. I mean, I've probably said this before, but there's there's a copy of Steel Sky CD thirty two on on eBay. It's been there for ages, and it's two hundred quid. And I, mm. and I, I need it for my uh, for my, my collection. But two hundred quid. He's going to keep it there if you say things like that, though. I yeah, know, yeah, it's, yeah. It's just taunting me, but at two hundred quid. I, I might, I might bid on it if I can get the price. <laughs> <laughs> you do that. We'll see who blinks first. <laughs> yeah, well, the problem is this, this is same same problem with with base base jumpers CD thirty two is like unicorn poo. It is right. It's really difficult to get. Most most of the CD32 games are, are, are hard to get. I mean, the, the, they were produced in fairly large numbers, but again, I don't know if they've ended up in landfill somewhere or what, because I, I know they were selling. But we just would never pay for them. <laughs> in fact, there was, a, there was a CD32 version of, of Cannon Fodder as well, um, mm. because um, I, I, we met with, uh, was it CD32 Gamer, who just reviewed Jet Strike and given us the same score as Cannon Fodder. And, and I said, well, wouldn't it really wind up the sensible guys if you actually you amended our score to be higher? And the guy goes, yeah, yeah, let's do that. <laughs> Which is how we ended up with a couple of points higher. <laughs> wow. Because <laughs> I know the CD32 version had the video had the video intro on it, which we didn't mm. have on the on the normal Amiga one. Um, but I never we never did the CD32 in house. That was that was I think Virgin took care of that um, when they you know when they when we'd finished it. But my brother had a CD32, so I got to see the, the first time I saw the actual CD32 version intro was was actually on my brother's machine. Um, I'd only seen it on VHS before it had got encoded. But uh, it's a shame, really, when you think about it. I mean, the, the whole the whole idea of the CD32 was was pretty good mm. in terms of what they were trying to achieve, but the execution wasn't quite there, was it? And I think yeah. maybe was it slightly slightly mistimed <laughs> yeah ten, 10 out of 10 for idea minus several million for implementation yeah it was, yeah it was just yeah, yeah. very very badly botched together i mean it, it could yeah. have been worse the, the um cdtv was a, absolutely a, a abysmal dead end yeah, um, yeah. With, with we used it as a karaoke on. machine at Sensible yeah. TV. That was our yeah. that was our de facto karaoke machine, <laughs> which I always declined to take part in. But but yeah, that was that was what that was used for. Because yeah. I think we were trying to do Sensi Soccer on it, and I remember they 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 um I got a bit fuzzy memory, but they they changed the chip RAM configuration on the CD CD TV, didn't they? I think they think they they did some fancy stuff. They they tweaked the memory configuration on it, which kind of meant that a lot of your games kind of just decided to say, well, no, I'm not working. Hmm. No, I'm not. Like, you load it up. You go, no, I'm not working. You think, why isn't this working? It's like, well, the memory's not right. Yeah. So well, you'd end up having to sort of work out what they changed on it. So yeah, it wasn't a great machine. It looked yeah. nice, but it, the, the worst again, bit was the, the controls because it was an infrared controller. Um, there was a massive, mm. massive lag on the controller. So any any game remotely twitchy, and you're like, turn, 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 turn. Now it's turning. Yeah. <laughs> it's really bad. And did it buffer? Did it buffer oh, it the, the controls as well? Yeah. As well? So you didn't have camera around well, because, because it actually went we in, turn, it turn, went turn, in turn, through turn. the keyboard controller, I think, as well. So it actually went through the keyboard buffer. 
Right. So it was oh, it was really really bad, which is why we just didn't touch it. We we were asked to do a version for that, and uh, I had a go of it. And I'm like, mm, no. <laughs> yeah. Let me just go downstairs and hug my Xbox Series X because when I hear stories like this, I can only hope that <laughs> yeah, things have improved. <laughs> well, that's the thing. I mean, you, you play a modern console, and it's like. There was a sweet spot, I think, with about the Xbox 360, the PlayStation 2 and 3, where you could put a game in, it would work, the controllers are actually rather good, the games looked great, they played great, and they didn't take forever to update every time you plugged the thing in. You know, And it's kind of gone beyond that to like the, oh, I want to play a game, oh, God, downloading updates, you know. <laughs> cartridges. Oh, I miss cartridges. I mean, Nintendo were probably too much of a stickler for them, as in the Nintendo 64 was probably time to ditch the cartridge, potentially, and I'm sure there's a lot of people who would disagree with me there. But they certainly stuck with cartridges far longer than we probably, you know, in hindsight, again, looking back, would have imagined, particularly when CD was becoming quite the dominant format. But it didn't do the Sega Saturn favours at the time. Go on, Tony. Sorry, they they made a lot of money duplicating everyone's um, cartridges. That's, That's... Mm. That was it. It was a lock-in, wasn't it, of, of yeah, the, yeah. the money? Yeah, because they were they were the only ones who could print them. Mm. Um, PlayStation One certainly had some serious uh, issues with copying of CDs because it was quite an easy console to mod, and even mm. I think it's quite hard to find one without a mod chip in it. I, even I brought a second-hand one, and I opened it up because I any time I get a new retro console, I think of the decades of grunge and grime and sweat and probably tears as well, has gone into the controllers and the actual console itself. So I always open it up and just give it a bit of a clean out. And along yeah. with a very yeah. big dead spider corpse, there was the mod chip next to it. <laughs> At Argonaut, there was, a, there, was a, there was a bounty for NTSC PlayStation 1s. Um, if anyone bought one, the Argonaut would buy it off you for the price you paid for it, plus an extra 50 or 100 quid. Um, because you could use them for for PlayStation development, and um, mm. because you you could you couldn't do it with the PAL ones for some reason or other, but with the NTSC ones you could actually plug plug the the dev cards in them and use them at least at least as either tester machines or even in some cases as as design machines, and and then as long as you hide them whenever the Sony rep comes around, because you're not supposed to. <laughs> But um, they were kind of hard to get in the UK. And at one point, when we were writing um, Aladdin, um, the um, the company just said, look, we, we desperately need more of these because we've got two teams doing Disney games where we've got new designers and we, we've got not enough machines for everyone to work on. We can't afford to buy dead proper dev kits off Sony because they were charging a lot for them. So, um, yeah, anyone who sees an NTSC PlayStation going in any of these second-hand shops, buy it, and we'll buy it off you and give you an extra bit of cash. Um, and mm-hmm. they got quite a few in that way. We did, we did um, when I left Sensible, I started a company called Abstract, and um, we had, we, we mostly used the Action Replay cartridges by Daytel. Mm. If you bought the PC card and the cable that went into it, you could use that as a cheap test machine. Yeah. And you obviously had to have it chipped, so you could put boot the you know boot your your CDR. But um, that worked brilliantly, you know, and it was cheap. 
Yeah, I don't know if you could develop on it fully, but I mean, we could. We we did actually just use them as test machines. They were really good. Yeah, I mean, because because we were doing we were using our uh, in-house ASL thing, we could actually use that for mm. a reasonable amount. Designers and testers could at least use that to build up a level and try and, and actually test with it. So that that was good enough for quite a lot of our stuff. Um, and then it would cycle kind of round round the system. But mm. um, yeah, the, the problem was the, the NTSC ones were rather cleverly booby trapped by Sony though, because um, they're 110 volts, um, but they had the, st- the standard uh, figure of eight power connector that the European ones have, except it doesn't have the thing to, to block the notch that's on it. So what you could do, you can't plug an American plug into um, a European one, but you can plug a, a European power plug into an into an American NTSC one. So there were at least three occasions I remember that, that a fairly high-flying designer or coder, oh, I know how to set this up, plugs it in large amount of smoke because they've plugged a, an American one into a, into, a, into the UK power supply and just mm. fried it. And it's like, that's taken us five weeks to get that. <laughs> and I think at one point it actually happened to one of the blue box ones as well, which is one of the official Sony kits. <laughs> so Tony, you're actually building a game right now, and that's in Unity, I believe. Uh, the shmup, yeah, yeah, yeah. So you're kind of a, I guess, a company of one, doing your own Wild Wild West style. No Will yeah. Smith connection. He's in the news at the minute. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But um, certainly from your point of view, Tony, how how are you finding it? to use as a platform uh what unity hmm so we've just uh, been well, talking uh, about the hellish qualms of development from the past so how are you using one of these modern tools who yourself i'm sure has had the development hells of the past two at times well there's different sorts of hells aren't there uh you know um you have to pick a hell these days i mean i don't like unity at all but it, it, <laughs> well that's it, a good it, start <laughs> It's it's horrible in 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 most ways, but it it solves platform issues, I suppose. So that's that's good. I mean, it 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 handles a lot of data for you and stuff like that. So I mean, it, I mean, it's easy to say I hate Unity, forgetting the problems that it solves. Um, you know, you can go you can go a different sort of hell would be trying to write an Android game using any of their tools. You know, that's that's an even less pleasant process. So, I mean, it's it's all been downhill in, since since PDS really on the eight bit. Probably Aaron, Aaron and Stu will, will understand what I mean by that. I mean, PDS was mm. just a thing of of great beauty. You know, it was it was a second at most to to from pressing the go button to having your game running on the on the Specky or the or the sixty four. You know, it was, it was so good. I mean, I, I like to iterate. You know, I'll 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 move something by a pixel, test it move it by another pixel, test it, move it back again, test, you know, I like to go test, 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 test. Uh, and you can't really even do that with, you know, a, a simple, small project on Unity. It's still, you know, it, it even on a, on a, on a, a fabulous new Mac, it, it's still, you know, reading config file, whatever it, whatever it does, assembling scripts, blah, blah, you know, 10 seconds, whatever, you know, it's, it's still not as good in terms of iteration speed. Um, but you know, it, it it solves some problems, I guess. I mean, I, my my dream is to is to 
someone to make a machine that that's just like the old 8-bit things fix a fixed low res screen but lots of colors lots of ram lots of processor you know and uh, we can develop down a wire like we used to do that would be great when Stu was mentioning about 8-bit computers and SID chips, it did get me thinking to those fantastic times when the one of the few times where you didn't actually mind seeing a loading screen was you'd start with your flickering, like, epilepsy-inducing loading screen on the Commodore 64. <laughs> then music will kick in. And Ocean Games are really renowned for this, where the music will kick in, it was like, this is better than the game. And then the loading, you know, <laughs> ever so slowly, line by line, you'd get like this one still image in very low resolution, very low color. Load in. I mean, probably a minute of the loading time was the music and that one little bit of <laughs> still screen you got to see throughout the rest of the loading experience. But I'll tell you what, those were some of my fondest memories of playing the Commodore 64 was seeing uh -huh. those loading screens and hearing that Sid chip music. It was <laughs> mind-blowing for the time and then you get to the game and think oh <laughs> maybe maybe I'll, I'll load it up again <laughs> i think on the six we used to buy sorry tony go on i was just going to say on, on the 64 the, the, there was a lot of creativity went into the loaders because i think you you could you could pretty oh. much write your own loader so i think it was like demo type people were writing the loaders and, and they were just showing off weren't they and and then when it when it got mm -hmm. to the game, it was it was different people. You know, you had the people who wrote the game, and the people who wrote the loader were different. Um, and the, the loader people were were similar to the demo type type people, so they were kind of um, up for tweaky effects everywhere. You know, so that's maybe why the games were not as good as the as the loader that loaded them. You know, but they did they did have I mean on later load they actually had games on the loaders didn't they you'd have a little game of Space Invaders or something on some of the later ones which which always used to be amaze me very basic version of, of an arcade game while the game's loading that that stopped yeah, after a while though because I think Atari patented cool. it some some it was probably Atari oh, right, but somebody okay. patented doing that and then all of a sudden everyone stopped it because they were getting sued oh, right. yeah. it's, it's like if the internet dies and now your google chrome browser will give you the dinosaur hopping over things which you can wait until the internet comes back <laughs> it's kind of still there in its own way <laughs> but I, tell you, I mean those 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 days of like budget titles i mean i used to used to buy budget games purely because i'd see like music by rob hubbard mm. and i go oh, i'll buy that just for the music because i know the music's gonna be good I don't care about the game and you think, well, it's two quid. So it's like, well, it's two quid. It's fine. You know, it's pocket money. I'll, I'll use my pocket money this week on, on this game. Me and my mate, we'd buy a game each. And he'd like one, we'd one, and that's it. And um, But it's this whole, this whole um, the memory of it, of this whole process. You go to the shop, you look through the cassettes. You think, well, I'll have that one. You go home, you sit there eagerly waiting for it to load, listen to the music, play it. Whereas now, obviously, that's that's all gone. So all those memories that we had of that experience of going through that, totally different generation won't even understand what we're talking about now. Mm. You know, they won't appreciate that that sentiment that's involved in looking back, even with rose tinted specs that I'm sure a lot of us do. But those memories, you know, are totally unrelatable by the modern generation. Mm. Even down to the, going, going to the school the day after you you, you played it and telling all your mates, don't get that one, it's rubbish. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's rubbish. Even for two quid, it's yeah. rubbish. <laughs> but the process yeah. started with like a copy of Crash or Personal Computer News or something, didn't it? 
And then you'd go to the shop. Right, yeah. Then you'd think, oh, that's the one I want. Then you'd go to the shops to see if they've got it. You know? mm. Yeah. But that's, I mean, that's, I mean, the, the, the monthly magazines like Crash and Zap and Amtics, that would be that anticipation. Oh, there's a, the new, you know, new Zaps out or new Crashes out. You grab it, and I'd 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 always read it in in like history lesson at school because that was so boring for me. So I'd have it in my bag. Me, me and my friend would sit next, and we'd wait looking browsing through Zap sixty four, and because the teacher would be over there, something like, oh yeah, look, that looks good. We'll get that one. And then when you go into the into Boots or Smiths at the weekend, will you? Well, we'll pick that one up, you know. Um, but the whole process was so. You were so engrossed in, in, in this world of video games, which were computer games back then. It wasn't called video games. Com- I mean, video games seems to be like an American term. Mm. You know, I mean, I always was brought up calling them computer games because we played them on computers. Um, but, I mean, I do. I, 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 find, I find that I'm quite um, appreciative of the fact that I was around at that time when all this stuff was emerging. You know, the new machines were coming out. Like, you know, I came, you know, I was looking at the ZX81 and before that, the ZX, ZX80 and then the Spectrum come out and you're thinking, what is, what are these machines? What do you use them for? And then when you start, like your mate gets one and then your, your cousin got one and then I got one and, and you think, wow, you know, and this whole, it's almost like the scene of, it starts to, to evolve out of these, these bits of electronic equipment. You know, and we was at the birth of all that, which I'm mm. at the time you've got no idea. But looking back, you think, well, that's, that's, that was pretty cool. That was really good. You know, I'm, I just appreciate the fact that I was around at that time. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we're getting a bit older now, yeah, aren't we? Cool. Like all of us in our fifties. But but what a great time yeah. to have been born because we we saw computers come in from from nothing, and and mobile phones and internet and all these things have come, and we've seen the whole process. Yeah. yeah and and the thing is i mean my career's my career's advice um i don't know what you'd call an officer or whatever you call them career's advice guy said to me oh there's no com- there's no future in computers <laughs> i said i want to i want to make computer i want to make computer games i want to be into computer programming because at the time i was i had like a crossroads I, I used to code on the 64 and the vic and i could do graphics and i chose the graphics route and kind of let the programming become more of a hobby and at the time, I said, well, I want to, be, I want to do computer programming. And he says, oh, there's, 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 there's no future in computers. And this is like 1982 yeah. or something. What a moment. That's kind of a common thread. I, I, um, in 82, I had my careers advice one at the same time, I think. 82, I had a careers advisor at, at the end of uh, fifth year saying, and, and I went to, to in the UK, and, she said, and I said, oh, I want to do, um, I want to do robotics. Because I, I was getting, I was, I was doing computer studies and everything at the time, and I was planning to take it further. And I was writing, writing games, and I was into games, but at the time I didn't know what I wanted to do as a career. So I, I but I thought I really want to get into robotics because I'd started playing around with them a bit at school. And and she goes, oh, that's too specific, too specific. You can't, yeah, you, know, you shouldn't be thinking that. You, what about farming or some other? You know, rubbish kind of Fine. thing that they, yeah, they, they, they have a standardized list for wherever you are because um i was in i was in uh fleet in hampshire i think at the time and then my dad got posted to hong kong so i moved out there and i was doing a sixth form in hong kong wasn't allowed to do computer studies because they didn't have an a-level course for it but we the, the careers advisor they sent out for the sixth formers was the same one from fleet in hampshire and she didn't recognise me, but I decided to broaden my my aspect to 
you know, something something in computers, maybe games or whatever. Oh, no, that's too generalistic. You've got to be more specific. <laughs> they were they were useless. You know, they, they were just there yeah, to make yeah. up numbers. I'm sure of it. Um, yeah. I had the opposite the of Stu's problem. They told me, go into computers. That is where the careers are. So they would have probably told uh, me about, this, about 90, yeah. yeah. So this would be probably yeah. 1994 sort of time. And I was yeah. like, yeah, um, well, I was going to do that anyway. That's fine. I'm I'm the only guy at school with an Acorn Archimedes, which is what we use at school. I had an advantage over everybody else. So it was like computers were my thing. And oh, the then late, I went to college well. to do yeah. computers, left college to go for my career path. Everybody was going for computer jobs. There was no, <laughs> there was no positions left. It was ridiculous. Yeah. Um, so Tony, the thing was, when I... Yeah, so, yeah, Tony, go, go. Oh, I was just going to say, mate, the careers advisor, they, t- they, j- they told me, I said, oh, I'm going to write games, and they, and they kind of laughed at me. And um, they said, what you want to do is be a, cl- be a clerk in an office, whatever that is. And, and the, they said, there might be a computer in there that you can, that you can lark about on at lunchtime. <laughs> well, when, well, thank when goodness you larked up. around and made some games in the process. Yes. Yeah. When I started up Shadow Software, in well, the original plan was in about 88, and I was in Devon. That, that had been posted back to Devon, so I started up from there. And um, I had this plan for writing games on the ST at the time, and, and I'd done all my research. I had a really good business plan, and I went to the local business advice guy. And, uh, and it's this old guy, and he says, oh, you know, the computer games industry, there's, there's nothing there. Look at this, this data I have from the B, uh, BPI or whatever it was, uh, uh, BTR, yeah, the British trade bunch, you know, that, that come up with all the, the statistics for all the, all the different industries of, in the UK. And there's this photocopied sheets about the British games industry that I swear were from the 1960s. They, they, they was like, this is just ridiculously out of date saying that there is no, no numbers at all really for, for games sales in the UK. And this is, you know, this is the late eighties games were, big in the in the uk in the 80s the companies were all starting to boom i had a business plan that was spot on and he dissuaded me at the time for a little while for for, for going as it was i still came back anyway and and, and and started it up on the enterprise allowance program um but despite his advice and three years later went back to him same guy i've been going for three years on on the enterprise allowance well in the first year on enterprise allowance and A, he was surprised to see me back because of everybody that started that year in, in North Devon on the Enterprise Allowance, I was the only one who was still in business because a lot of it was get you off the dole. We don't care. We'll just give you 25 quid a week. Just do whatever business you want. And most of them, they submit their business plan. They do it. They get, their, they borrow their money to do it. They do it, go out of business within a year once it's, once it runs out. And I wanted to employ my brother. Um, part time and I just wanted some advice on the whole thing of national insurance and what you know how I, how much I can get away with paying him and not paying him and so on, you know. And um and he says, Oh, so where's your shop then? I said, Well we don't have a shop. We 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 we're an international mail order sort of thing. Because we're writing games for supporting the Stoss and Amos clubs and stuff like that. And of course it's an international thing with with phone calls and mail order. And he said, well, international, you mean like Taunton? And this was what I was putting up with at the time in Devon. It was just like, you know. 
Well, I have to say, guys, this has been a fantastic podcast. Thank you for everyone for joining us today. I'll just finish on this one little note. Um, Stu was kind enough to create the logo, logo for pixelrefresh.com. So based on an old photo of me with my arms crossed, Stu managed to do a pixelized version, which I'm very happy with, which has become the, the brand identity. And in fact, it was because of that logo you did, Stu, I thought, pixels i've got to do something with my website because it was jameswoodcott.co.uk before uh-huh. I, I need to make this a little bit more universal so it's not just me 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 i wanted it more about what i'm covering rather than you know it's my portfolio so that kind of inspired that so thanks to do i'm very proud of that brand recognition you've given me by creating that logo for me, which has burned then the name <laughs> pixel refresh <laughs> Oh, that's your welcome. I enjoyed doing it actually. I really, I really enjoy doing these pixel portraits. They're, um, I don't know how it works because I just seem to just draw them and they sort of resemble the people I'm supposed to be drawing. So, um, people seem to like them, and I'm, I'm pleased you like your one. So it's, uh, you've got, you've got a very unique one as well because I've actually put your arms in it. Most people don't get the arms; they just get the shoulders. So, <laughs> so there you, you go. You got the extra. <laughs> Head and shoulders above the rest, eh? Okay. <laughs> there you go. There you go. <laughs> and uh, so, Stu, where can we find out more about your good self? Because I know you have a, a shop as well. We actually sell a lot of your pixel artwork. I do. I've got a, I set up a, a shop called the designdroid.co.uk. Uh, which is basically just for me to sort of sort of sell artwork that I and it gives me a focal point to create new art because I I don't normally create a lot of art outside of client work, so I thought well I'll, I'll create I create that up and set that up uh, and I'm currently renovating StuCambridge.com at the moment so that'll be up sort of within the next sort of month and a half once I finish sort of putting the new style sheets up and doing all that sort of stuff. Um, I'm on Twitter Stu Cambridge on Twitter. Once you get on there, I'm I'm pretty much everywhere really. I mean I'm, I'm... <laughs> omnipresent as they say i don't tend to do a lot of social media i, I tend to do my social media in the mornings um because i find it so you can be on there for like half an hour and then next you know it's two hours have gone by so i try to just do that first thing in the morning and then uh you know but so i'm all over I'm the just place, imagining you know, still on yeah, tiktok and, yeah. uh... <laughs> oh no <laughs> <laughs> my son my son was saying oh, are you on tiktok i said no i did i did look at it but i thought no i can't i can't add any more uh, twitter and instagram is where i tend to hang out mostly uh i don't really do facebook um i go on there just to post a few bits but i don't tend to interact much on facebook so twitter's probably i'd say i mostly interact so look out for your tweets oh, yeah. and how about aaron where mm. can we find you sir Um, I'm on Twitter. I think I'm Zwilnik SF on Twitter at the moment. Um, uh, I, I am on Facebook, but I keep my Facebook one private, and I'm I'm gradually winding down my Facebook presence because I really just don't like it there anymore. <laughs> um, uh, I kind of I kind of we've we've, we've take, taken Strange Flavor back a bit while while um, Adam and I work on contract work for a while. So um, yeah, we're just mostly focusing on that. So I'm, I'm working at uh, Shifty Eye Games in, over in Canada. I'm not. They, they're rather good at letting me work from Spain. Um, but uh, we're working with them on some stuff. And um, yeah, generally, um, just I think, yeah, I don't even. I've got an Instagram profile, but I don't think I've used it in a year. <laughs> I'm I'm so unhip. It's amazing. My legs. Tony, you've up. got your game in progress. Yeah. You've got a book <laughs> in process, like the history of 
Revolution Software and all that goodness. Where can we find out more about Tony? Uh, I guess through through Twitter. There's a there's a link on my uh, profile on there that takes you to a website and stuff like that. So Twitter, yeah, Twitter's the place. Twitter is the well. It seems we're all interested in Twitter. Well, it had nothing to do with Elon Musk investing just recently, was it, guys? <laughs> no. That might be. That's Everyone's probably why you've got all there. that money in. Let's put some millions into this. <laughs> bye, bye. Maybe you'll find a cannon fodder game. Yeah. Hey, maybe Elon Musk will be found a cannon fodder. We can get another cannon fodder. If you get ground. some sort of Tesla-inspired yeah. yes, aspect in there, anything's yeah, possible. Yeah. Good, good we'll get some Teslas in there. You can drive a Tesla around the cannon fodder landscape. That'd be cool. Well, thanks again, well, yeah. guys. And that's it for this Game <laughs> and Gadget podcast. <laughs> <laughs>